And the question I want to ask you this morning, are you sitting or are you scurrying? That word's an interesting word, isn't it? Part of the reason I used it is because uh, it starts with an S, you know, two, two words with S. But also, I think it, it, it's a good word picture of our lives that we are scurrying about in all sorts of directions and in all sorts of ways. And we need to reorient ourselves to the reality of could our lives have misplaced priorities? Could our spiritual lives be lacking because we are scurrying about so much? And this is a truth that involves our everyday lives, our individual lives, our individual spiritual lives, and the life of our church, as we will talk about. And I want to just give you this morning some interesting stats, some interesting facts. This is taken from, uh, from uh, basically an article Eight things you may not know about busyness in the United States of America. Each of these, each of these uh, statements that I'm going to read to you are documented in, um, in the footnotes of this. If you would like the link to this, I can send it to you. Just let me know. But these eight Things that we may not know about busyness in the United States of, of America. I just found these rather shocking. Let me just read these to you. Number one, we are stressed out. Now that may not be strike, uh, striking to you, but, but here's, the, here, here's the fact. And again, this, is, this isn't just one of those random statements online. Um, this, this is footnoted with documentation but did you know we are not only are we simply stressed out, but commuters, maybe not here, but maybe if you're nearer to a city, commuters experience greater levels of stress than fighter pilots and riot police. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Number two, eight things that we have to know about busyness in the United States of America, our country specifically. We work the longest. British workers put in an extra hour every day compared to Germans and Italians. But that's still almost an hour less than Americans. So statistically, Americans work the longest. Number three, we have longer work weeks despite our continued improvements and efficiency. This is really interesting. Did you know in 1967, futurists predicted that coming generations would have too much spare time? <laughs> Testimony before a Senate subcommittee claimed that by 1985, the average work week would be just 22 hours. How do you think that prediction went? <laughs> because of all this helpful technology. So this is number four. Did you know that we rest way less than other developed nations? So similar to number two, 
But let's read about this. It says, while workers in Norway enjoy nearly 70 vacation days per year. Wow. Workers in the United States are busy putting in nearly 14 more work weeks and taking only a negligible amount of time off in comparison. Did we mention, it goes on to say, that even with all that time off, Norway is still known for its work ethic and high standard of living. Interesting. Number five, we believe here in the United States of America the lie, we believe the lie that we need more time. And this is a quote from Peter Drucker. The supply of time is totally inelastic. In other words, it doesn't change. No matter how high the demand, the supply will not go up. There is no price for it and no marginal utility curve for it. Moreover, time is totally perishable and cannot be stored. It can't be stored up. Time is therefore always an exceedingly short supply. So in other words, as the, as the responsibilities pile up, as the things we put upon ourselves pile up, time is inelastic. It does not change. Therefore, we feel that there's never enough time. Here's an interesting one, number six. Many, this is going to go against many of your, many of your thoughts. Did, did you know, specifically women, that we cannot multitask? Now, you knew that about men, right? Did you know you can't either? We cannot multitask. The brain can't put forth effort in two mental processes at the same time. We may think we are multitasking, but what we are actually doing is switch tasking. So then we think, why is my mind always spinning? We are not really multitasking. We're just really good at switch tasking. This was really interesting. I'm saying this on each point, aren't I? Number seven, did you know that because of our busyness, if you are a parent, we are stressing out our kids? Listen to this. Secondhand stress is a big problem for kids. Researcher Ellen Galinsky interviewed more than 1,000 kids in grades 3 to 12 and asked them, quote, if you were granted one wish to change the way that your father's slash mother's work affects your life, what would that wish be? End of quote. The kids' answers were striking. Instead of wishing for more face time with their parents, they wished that their parents would simply be less stressed out. Wow. Isn't that convicting? Maybe then the less stress would lead to not necessarily more time, but more quality time. And then last but not least, number eight, we're not getting enough sleep. Now, I know moms, you'd say, that's a no-brainer. More than one-third of all working adults get fewer than six hours of sleep a night. That's over 40 uh, 
40 million people with sleep deprivation. Also, the average American gets 2.5 fewer hours of sleep per night than they did a century ago. Those are some pretty eye-opening statistics and facts, are they not? There's no doubt that we are not only a busy society, but I would fathom to say that we actually pride ourselves on our busyness. That we are actually proud of the fact of how busy we are. We may complain about how busy we are, but at the end of the day, we often gain some type of a sense of an identity because of how much we have to do and how busy we are. And one of my greatest fears, and we've talked about this in prior members' meetings, we've talked about this uh, as a leadership team with deacons, with our deacons, one of my greatest fears is that what we do as Christians is that we take the culture of busyness that we are inundated with throughout the work week and we simply transfer that culture into our spiritual lives and into the life of the church. And we therefore can have a church that is just a mirror of the collage of busyness of our society. And that is not healthy for our spiritual lives. It is not healthy for the life of our body. And what will happen if this is the case is that we see the following results. Let me just give you six of these by way of introduction, and many of them overlap. But this morning, we're going to get into Luke chapter 10. We're just going to get into it a little bit, but I want to really set this up this morning. The following results will take place when we take the culture of bi- the culture of this world system, which is one of the busier you are, the more productive you are, the better you are, and we transfer that to our spiritual lives as individuals and our lives as the body of Christ. Number one, we, and this is both, again, individually and corporately as a church, we will begin to base our spirituality and our church health on how busy we are for the Lord or how many events our church has planned. So we begin to to analyze on an individual level, my spirituality is based on how many things I'm involved in. My My spiritual vitality is based on how busy I am, even in the things of the Lord. Or in a corporate sense, we can base how productive our church is based on how many ministries we offer or how many things we are doing or how often the doors of of the building, I'm not going to say the doors of the church because we as as God's people are the church, but how, how often the doors of the building are opened. We begin to say, okay, that is our gauge, that is our litmus test for our spiritual health. And that's a recipe for burnout. That's a recipe for going through the motions. 
when our heart has anything but a heart that desires to live for and serve the Lord. Along with that, number one, number two, we will begin to substitute our being, putting that in quotes, our being for, quote, doing. And again, we face the resultant burnout and emptiness that such a decision brings. So when we are so busy and we gauge, the, uh, as a litmus test, we gauge our busyness with spirituality, then we're all about doing, but we forget being. We can, even, we can even be so strategic and so scheduled that we say, okay, so from, from 8 o'clock in the morning to 8.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning to 4.30 or whatever the case is, uh, that's going to be my devotion time and that's going to be my time alone with the Lord. And did you know we can be so busy that that is just a routine that we do? It's not a state of being of our heart, of coming before the Lord in stillness and quietness to truly commune with him. But yet we can gauge our busyness and, well, I did do my personal Bible study time. I did serve in the church in this way. I was at the services of the church. I did do this. I did speak to that person. I'm okay. But as we're going to see in our story those things in and of themselves are just surface things. Number three, when we produce a culture of busyness in our lives as individuals and in the life of the church body, we will begin to lack depth and intimacy in our spiritual life, both with the Lord and with others. There begins to be a lack of depth. Over time, that depth deepens. And because there's this lack of depth in our spiritual life, we wake up and we suddenly realize, why is it that I feel so distant from the Lord? Why is it when calamity strikes and trial strikes, why does it seem like I can't place my trust and my confidence in Him? Why is it that I have trouble, as Proverbs uh, tells us, to run into the tower of the stronghold of the Lord? Maybe it's because we've run so far the opposite direction that we have to realize it takes a little bit longer to get back to that place. And not only that, but it, because our, our love for God is tied to our love for one another, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. When the intimacy, the relationship with the Lord begins to deteriorate, the relationship with one another in the body begins to deteriorate. You find yourself snapping at other individuals, you find people start to rub you the wrong way, whereas before they, necess- they didn't. You find in your mind, under your breath, grumbling 
about what your spouse does, what the fellow church member does. And there begins to be not only a deterioration in your relationship with the Lord, but in your relationship with one another, whether that person or those people realize it or not. Another fourth thing that can result in this culture of busyness that we mirror as Christians is that we will be busy fighting worldliness or worldly thinking in the church all the while allowing it to fester and spread in this area of misplaced priorities. Satan's, one of Satan's greatest tactics in being that roaring lion who walks about seeking whom he may devour is not to, to come at us from those areas where we have our safeguards up. It is to come at us and blindside us in those areas that we are not even aware of our cracks and our foundation. And folks, churches can get so caught up in fighting against those things that, that are in your face, sins and issues that they let come in through the back door, these other worldly things. And it cracks at the foundation. And this can be in so many different areas with the life of a church. You see, a church can guard, uh, can guard doctrinal purity which we should and we better, but then we allow gossip, backbiting, division, all of that stuff to come through the back door. But those things are more easily ignorable, aren't they? The next result is that we will judge ourselves and others on shallow outward factors rather than spiritual maturity and passion for knowing the heart of God. We will judge ourselves and others on shallow outward factors rather than spiritual maturity and passion for knowing the heart of God. In other words, what we can begin to do in our individual lives and what we can begin to do in our corporate life as the local people of God here at Covington, Pennsylvania, at Covington Baptist Church, is we can begin to gauge not only our own spirituality on shallow factors like, well, what are they involved in? What are they doing? What's this? What's that? But we can actually get upset at other people that we don't feel they're doing as much as they should be doing. They're not doing as much as us, so somehow they must be less spiritual. And we start to develop this, this culture in our minds, and if we're not careful in our churches, this culture of a shallow spirituality, of going through the motions, but not truly seeking the heart of God. What a danger this is. We're going to see in our 
passage in Luke 10, what a danger it was for Mary and Martha. The last result that I just want to bring out, though we could continue to go on, along with these other points that that we've made, we will replace what is most basic and crucial to spiritual health for that which is circumstantial and immediate. I don't know if you remember years and years ago, well, years and years ago, like it's just so ancient, probably four or five years ago, um, I showed a video, um, and it was, it was kind of a little five-minute uh, comedy clip from Bob Newhart. Have Bob Newhart fans out here? Okay, I was looking at Dick. And he was, he was pretending to be in the role of a counselor, and this lady came in and had these problems and is, is going through, you know, all of this, this, these issues. Maybe we can show this for the, for the counseling course, you know, next week or something. Um, and, and, and his answer was, well, you know, the answer, you know how Bob Newhart acts and talks. Well, you know, the answer is, just stop it. Just stop it. And, and she's like, well, yeah, but this is going on, this is going on. Well, you want to get better, don't you? Yeah, well, just stop it then. <laughs> and it was just, it was very funny. It was very funny. But what he was doing is he was seeking a quick, immediate answer. A quick, circumstantial, immediate answer to that which was a hard issue. And, and when we replace what is most basic and crucial to spiritual health for these substitutes, we are simply going to seek quick fixes to things and quick, quick indicators of spiritual productiveness and health. So rather than, for instance, when someone is struggling, rather than just saying, well, you know what? Why don't you get involved and serve more? Though that may be part of the issue that, that we all need to be reaching out and serving. Maybe there is an underlying spiritual heart issue that takes time and that takes quietness and stillness to uncover. That we have somehow lost the privilege and the responsibility of being able to come before our Lord and to commune with Him, to pray to Him, to even be silent, letting Him minister to your heart. We've replaced all that for all of these little, quick, spiritual fixes. Listen, hearing a song on the radio that ministers to your heart, that is great, and I love it when, when a song ministers to my heart, but if that's our quick spiritual fix for the entire week, or even the entire day, 
Man, we're settling for circumstantial things. Listen, if just sitting down and reading two verses of the Bible, now some days are crazy, and we just, we're going to talk about this. We, uh, there's busyness all around us, but if that is, is somehow our quick spiritual fix, then man, I mean, how, how much sense does that make? How healthy is it for somebody to go around with the five-hour booster drinks and taking them for weeks at a time, years at a time? Not too smart, but we do that all the time spiritually. Well, today we're going to read of two individuals who provide both a warning and an encouragement to each of us. As we read the story of Mary and Martha, this is what we're going to be confronted with. We're going to look at these over the next two weeks. We're going to be looking at a contrast. We are going to be looking at a rebuke. And thirdly and finally, we are going to be looking at a wake-up call. Again, both for us as individuals and for the body, this local church. And the key principle that we are going to discuss this week can be stated as such. It will be on the overhead for you. Simply this. As disciples, we are called to sit at the feet of Jesus. As disciples, we are called to sit at the feet of Jesus. And this morning, we're just going to look at this first element, the contrast that this story in Luke 10, 38 to 42 provides for us. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this story of Mary and Martha, Father, we see two individuals that, as we're going to talk about, they loved you, they served you, they sought to be faithful to you. But Lord, that did not negate that issues were involved, issues that you feel needed to be addressed. And Father, we as your people, we love you. God, we want to dedicate our lives to you. We want to follow you. But Lord, I feel that you have a word for us, just as you had a word for Mary and Martha. Father, would we be characterized as a people, as a church, as individuals that sit at the feet of Jesus? May we be characterized as a church, as a people, as individuals, God, that seek not just to do, but to be. Lord, there's many of us here, I would say all of us here, in one way, shape, or form, have lost our way regarding this. And I pray through the revelation of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that you would pinpoint those areas. Lord, guide our discussion, our small group discussions tonight, Monday, Tuesday. And would you bring us back to a stillness of heart? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Terry read the story for us here in Luke 10, 38 to 42. I just want to read it again by way of introduction. It says here, Now as they went on their way, 
Jesus entered into a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, not exactly the immediate response she was hoping for, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. We see here in this passage a clear contrast that I would like to look at this morning as we kind of provide the foundation to this text. And there's a few areas of contrast that I would like to focus our attention on. The first area is that we see a, a clear contrast of persons. I mean, isn't that obvious? You have two people, right? Mary and Martha. And no two people are alike, praise God, right? <laughs> yeah. Have you ever thought if there were more people in the world like me, it would be a better place? Well, probably not. <laughs> Imagine if everyone had your weaknesses and everyone had your strengths. But as we look at this contrast of persons, I first want us to grasp their similarities. Because it's so easy for people to come to a text like Luke 10, 38 to 42, and paint these broad brush strokes of, of, of vagueness and lumping everything into one box and to say, Martha, she's portrayed as bad in this passage, and Mary, she's portrayed as so good. No, I want us to look at the similarities here before we start looking at some of the contrasts. Because the similarities here are, first of all, we have to realize they both proclaimed Jesus as Lord. He was the Lord of their lives. For instance, look at verse 40 of this text. It says, she went up to him and she said what? What's the first word of her quote? I think that should be the same for no matter what translation you have. Lord, right? Lord. If you want to put your finger just a few books over in the book of John 11, we're going to refer to, to the John passage uh, a little bit this morning. So if you just want to put a marker there. As many of you know, if you don't know, uh, just take note of this. John chapter 11 is the passage that records Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus happened to be the brother of Mary and Martha, the same two people. Now look at verse 21 and 22. When Jesus comes into their town, which is Bethany, Martha said to Jesus, again, we have the same beginning word of the quotation, don't we? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And look at her heart of trust. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Wow, what a statement of faith. Martha 
loved Jesus. Martha claimed Jesus and Mary as well as Lord. That word Lord is simply not another name for Jesus. The word Lord is actually a title for Jesus. Not just a, 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 a simple name, but a title. Saying Lord to someone is saying, you are my master. You are the one that I follow. You are the one that I seek to build my life after and to build my life upon. So Martha is not just saying to Jesus by name, uh, Lord, She is giving a confession to to Jesus as well that you are indeed my Lord. You are my master. I desire to follow you. But yet I don't understand your ways. Boy, is that and should that be the cry of our heart? But Mary as well. Mary claimed Jesus as Lord. If you're, you're back in in, uh, in our story in Luke, you see the actions of, of Mary who is placing herself in submission to her Lord and Master. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. As we go back and you look at the story in John 11 of Jesus and Mary and Martha and raising Lazarus, in verse 32, Mary has the same response to Jesus that Martha had. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, what? Lord, Master. They both claim Jesus as Lord. You see, what we are going to see in this rebuke to Martha in our passage, as we look at this issue of, of are we sitting or scurrying or as a popular book, which is a very good book, encourage you to get it. Uh, um, are, you, are you having a, Mar- a merry heart in a Martha world? We cannot say, well, somehow one was less dedicated to Jesus. So before we beat ourselves up, our hearts, I believe, so many times are in the right place. We want to follow our Lord and Master. We want to serve Him. But we get some priorities mixed up. You see, not only did they both claim Jesus as Lord, they both simply loved Jesus. I mean, isn't that the, the entirety of the story in Luke 10, 38-42? Um, the, the underlying um, idea you get with both Mary and Martha's actions? I mean, why was Martha serving Jesus? Because ultimately she loved him, right? Why was Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus? Because she loved him. They both loved Jesus. Again, um, not to belabor the point, but in John 11, going back, uh, we see that in verse 2, we see that It was Mary who who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. And then you see it says, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. We see repeatedly in John 11, not only 
instances of Mary and Martha's love for Jesus, but Jesus' love for them. They both love Jesus. And here, this may seem as a a no-brainer, but I want to bring this out. Another similarity between Mary and Martha is they were both in the same family. Say, why would you bring up a dumb point like that? Isn't it people living in the same family that sometimes are the most difficult to get along with? Why? Because you're close to them? You have a familial bond to them? You are tied together by something greater than just friendship. You're tied together by something greater than I like your hobbies, they're like my hobbies, I like your personality because it's similar to mine or it offsets mine. No, it's, hey, like it or not, our DNA matches and we got to live in the same house. If you're a kid, we got to live sometimes in the same room. And listen, in the family of God, do you realize that each one of us are in the same family? A more ultimate, lasting, eternal family than the one that we are in here on this earth, the, 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 the biologically connected family? And man, being in the family of God is a greater unifying factor than even the DNA that runs through our blood. And in a church, like in a home, you're not connected to one another because you necessarily have the same personality traits, the same hobbies, the same experiences, the same commonality bonds that would make you maybe a best friend with another person. But folks, you are tied together not through your own blood, but the blood of Jesus. Amen? And therefore, if our heart is not firmly rooted in Christ and we are connected to Him and there is a stillness of heart that we have before Him and in the love of God that has been manifested to us through Jesus, we are going to forget our bond in Christ and we are going to go to all of these other issues and it's going to cause family problems. Why is that person so disorganized? Why is that person uh, this? Why does that person say this to me? Why did they walk past me and not talk to me? All of those things that happen in family life. Why did they steal my Hot Wheels car? No. (laughs) Just like we see tension between Mary and Martha. They were both in the same family. But I want us to look at a contrast, or not only similarities, but differences. And what we see overall, I'm not going to go through a list of specific differences. I just want to give you an overview here. What we see is a great evidence in both the Luke narrative, the Luke story, and in the John story in John 11, 11, 
of a contrast that does exist between Mary and Martha. They both claimed Jesus as Lord. They both loved him, but there were some key differences. Again, we want to note that in and of themselves, these contrasts were neither right nor wrong. I mean, obviously, a, a, a huge difference. Martha was more of a go get person. Maybe, we would, maybe in today's vernacular, in today's language, we would say that Martha was a type A personality. Hey, there's a job that needs to be done. I'm there. And maybe Mary, maybe she had a little bit more laid-back personality. That, you know what? It's not just about getting a task accomplished. It's about the heart behind it. And you can see a recipe for automatic friction, can't you? It's not that Mary was wrong to say, or Martha was wrong to say a job needs to get done. It's not that Mary was wrong to say we need to get behind the action and get to the heart. Because, I mean, it was Mary who, she didn't just sit back and do nothing. It was Mary that washed Jesus' hair or feet with her hair and the costly ointment. And the disciples said, why are you letting her waste that precious, expensive ointment on your feet? You see, it's not that, that either perspective was inherently right or wrong. Just like many times in, in our personal spats, whether that's at home, whether that's in the life of our church, it's not that, that there is an inherent wrongness in many of the things that are argued about. Many of them stem from personal wiring, personalities. But here's the reality of the fact. Our personal wiring does not function in a vacuum. In other words, we are not isolated in this test cubicle in a science lab where we don't affect anyone else and it's just all our little world. No, we are in this world with other people and our personal proclivities, our personal wirings, because we are living in a broken world and we ourselves are broken people, those personalities interests, all of those things that are inherent within us, if we are not careful, easily fall into the category of sin. You see, you can be the type A, go get them, and, and I know I'm stereotyping a little bit, but you can be that go get them person, which can even be a strength in your life. But if you allow that to develop a heart of hostility and looking down upon others and getting upset if that agenda doesn't get accomplished, that natural wiring becomes sin. If you are one that just sits back and you're a little bit more laid back, That, lay, that being more laid back many times has strengths to it. And God has wired into you certain strengths that such a personality naturally brings because of God's, uh, God's great design. To say, you know what, I'm going to think through issues. I am going to 
to weigh out. I'm going to seek God's wisdom. I'm not going to just react. But yet, many times, because we are broken people, those personal wirings are broken because of the fall. How easy it is to let that laid-backness amount to doing nothing. Not stepping up, husbands, to spiritually lead your home. Wives may be wanting to push your husband too quickly to certain things. You see, our lives do not, are not contained in a vacuum. Personal proclivities can easily fall into the category of sin. And in this passage, what we have highlighted is that Martha's personal proclivity, even in the midst, this is what we have to get, even in the midst of loving Jesus and calling him Lord, seeking to follow him, there was a personal proclivity that had lost its sense of direction. And Jesus was calling her to bring it back, give it to him, and become reoriented with what was truly important. Just quickly want to go over another contrast. Not only a contrast of persons, but a contrast of actions. Again, just in setting this up, I want to look at Mary first. Mary was on what we would call the welcoming committee. If you look in Luke 10, 38, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. You see the same thing in John chapter 11, verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. In other words, she welcomed him. But Mary remained seated in the house. So we see that Martha was on the welcoming committee, so to speak. We also see that that Martha, her actions portray her as the hostess. She was the one directing the party, so to speak. Look at Luke 10.40. But Martha was uh, distracted with much serving. Why was she doing the much serving? Because she was considering herself the hostess. What does that commercial say? The hostess with the mostess? And same thing in John 12. In John 12, going over from John 11, verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there. This is after Lazarus was raised from the dead. And look again. Whom Jesus raised from the dead, verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there. And guess who served? Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. 
So I say a contrast of actions because we see Martha on the welcoming committee, and here we see Mary, and Mary is not pictured for us as on the welcoming committee. Martha is pictured for us as a worshiper and as a disciple, very specifically. One person says this, that as we notice in, in Luke chapter 10, where was it that, that Mary was? Verse 39, who sat at the Lord's feet. I like what one commentator said. They said, this was a disciple's proper place. Now again, it's not that Martha was not a disciple, but we see throughout the narratives of Mary and Martha being together and being uh, contrasted, we see that while both of them loved Jesus, claimed him as Lord, wanted to follow him, that Mary is the one that is specifically emphasized to be a functional disciple of Jesus. And the fact that she is portrayed as sitting at the Lord's feet is not just a coincidence. This was the posture of a disciple. You say, how do you know that, Pastor Adam? Well, I want to look. I'll just take you to two other passages where we see this, this same um, phrase, the same idea. Luke 8.35. It'll be on the overhead. Don't turn there. Notice the man that was possessed by a legion, a legion of demons. It says, then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone and how is he postured? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Anybody remember how he was clothed before? <laughs> he had nothing on. And he was enchained. And they were afraid. You see, the text here in Luke is emphasizing the difference that Jesus made. Someone, talk about scurrying around. This guy was scurrying around naked. <laughs> this guy was scurrying around in so many different directions, and he had to be chained just to be contained. Have you ever told someone that's so busy, could you just sit down and take a breath? I mean, this guy was filled with a legion of demons, and, and he's scurrying around. And then, after truly meeting Jesus... He's sitting at his feet. Folks, Luke doesn't write this just to give you a mental image of this guy that's now clothed that's just sitting there, like sitting there Indian style, like just looking at Jesus. The text is using language that is characterized as this guy is now a disciple of Jesus. This guy went from possession of demons to possession of Jesus. Amen? And folks, somewhere along the line, we lose sight of the sitting at the feet of Jesus, and we are so busy scurrying around. And, and, and one of the things we can draw from this story is when we do that, we are living like a, in, in light of a pre-conversion state. That we have forgotten that those whom Jesus has saved, he calls to sit at his feet. One other passage in Acts 22 and this isn't even referring to Jesus, but just to show you this phrase is an indicator of a disciple 
Paul says this in defending himself. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated where? Now, do you think that Paul kneeled there and was just staring at Gamaliel's feet for a couple years, and then he could get up and he could say before the Jews that I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I can tell you every type of fungus under his toenails. No, what he is saying is I was a disciple of Gamaliel. I sat down before him, letting myself be focused and still as he taught me, as he directed me, as he proclaimed truth to me. And therefore, I can claim this person as my instructor. Folks, how inconsistent is it for you and I to call ourselves disciples of Jesus when we're doing anything but sitting at Jesus' feet? And again, we're going to unpack more of what this looks like next week because I know all of the yeah buts are going through your mind right now. But that doesn't take away the fact that this is to what we are called to as individuals and as a church. Are you so busy scurrying that, man, you can't remember the last time you fat, sat at Jesus' feet? You see, Mary was emphasized to be a disciple of Jesus. And this is, uh, as we close, this is just what I want to bring out to you. Not only was she a disciple, but by being a disciple who sat at Jesus' feet, it brought out something in her heart. It brought out true worship. And that's why we see the same individual, uh, Mary, in John chapter 11, Look at what she did to Jesus. Verse 2, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. You see, only one, only one whose heart was truly full of the experiential love of what Jesus had come to do, of what he said, of his actions. Only one whose heart is filled with that would say, you know what, I'm going to take what is truly costly to me, break it open, and pour it at Jesus' feet. You see, we try to manufacture spiritual growth. We try to manufacture being as individuals, being as a church. We try to manufacture those things for simply doing. And when we do that, we are missing out on the true heart response that comes from truly being Because doing will result. Man, you're sitting at the feet of Jesus. Uh, You are are learning 
his word. You are learning what that means. There, there's a proper priorities, and, and, and there's all of this going on. Man, it is going to fire up your heart. And doing is going to follow, but it has to be in the proper place. Being first and then doing. It cannot be the way that we equate do first and hopefully be. So as we close today, I simply want to ask you, what is it this morning that needs to be broken and poured out at the feet of Jesus to enable you to truly be one of his disciples and sit at his feet? Is it a schedule? Is it a priority? Is it one of those things on the to-do list that you really don't need in your life right now? As a church, as, uh, we have to ask ourselves, and as church leaders, we have to ask ourselves, what is it our church is doing that maybe is a good thing, but it is not accomplishing the overall objective of Covington Baptist Church to make disciples who live, love, and proclaim the gospel within our community of faith and to our world. What are those good things that are hindering you? What are those things that you know are not good that are hindering you? Are you willing as a disciple to break that open and pour it at his feet? Let's pray. As we close today, our, we're not going to sing today because our time is, is done. But I just want, again, in the stillness of our hearts and the stillness of the hour, the instrumentalists are just going to play a verse and a chorus. And I'd like us to just, in the quietness of our hearts, to seek, to ask the Lord, God, where have I wandered from your feet?